All right, well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 8, where we've been the last few Sundays. And as you do, question, how do you respond to your own mortality? So every single one of us is going to die someday. But how, how do you handle that reality? I think we, we know people and we've seen people over the years who handle it differently, right? So some despair and try to dull the pain and despair with distraction. Others can use death as sort of a motivation to live a full life, like the late Steve Jobs when he said, death is very likely the single best invention of life, calling it life's change agent. Others might use humor and sarcasm to just kind of play it off, like Woody Allen, who once said, there are worse things in life than death. Have you ever spent an evening with an insurance salesman? <laughs> but another way people have dealt with death is to try to harness science to either delay it or defeat it altogether. So the founding editor of Skeptic magazine is named Michael Shermer. And he summarizes in an article four ways people are trying currently to defeat death. Uh, one is cryonics, where you freeze your brain until it can be reanimated later. Uh, two, extropy. For those of you of a scientific persuasion, that's the opposite of entropy, sort of a utopian worldview. Three, transhumanism, which seeks to improve the human body gradually through enhancements, and eventually genetic engineering. And then four, this is my favorite, mind uploading, which hopes at some point in the future to use computers to upload your soul, your mind, and yourself, and therefore achieve immortality. Now, Shermer, and this is where we can agree with the founder of Skeptic Magazine, Shermer is indeed skeptical of all of these things, which he should be. But what caught my attention in his article at the, is at the beginning, and how he described kind of the historic religious view of death. Here's what he says. Why do we have to die? Theologians and religious believers have long had a ready-made answer. Death is simply a transition from this stage to the next. In the religious worldview, death needs no explanation other than God wills it as part of a deific design that will be disclosed once we get to the other side. Is Shermer, is Shermer right about that? So do we as Christians really believe death is part of God's design to transfer us to the afterlife? Well, church family, in our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning, we come to the final, as I said before, the final of three passages where we've seen Jesus' powerful authority. So three weeks ago, uh, we saw his authority over nature when he calmed the storm. Actually, it was two weeks ago, three Sundays ago. Uh, last Sunday, we saw his authority over the devil when he exercised not one, but a legion of demons from a wild man. And today, we wrap up this section of passages by seeing Jesus' authority over disease and, yes, even death itself. So again, if you have your Bibles and you haven't turned there yet or clicked there yet, turn to Luke chapter 8, and this morning we'll be in verses 40 through 56. Luke 8, starting in verse 40. 
Now when Jesus returned, the, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, that is Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. That's the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May it change us this morning. So for our outline today, I'd like us to kind of see this text in three different scenes. So scene one... By the sea, death looms. Scene one, location by the sea, death looms. Scene two, on the road, a daughter healed, a daughter lost. So scene two, location on the road, a daughter healed, a daughter lost. And then finally, scene three, at Jairus' home, death defeated. So, scene three, location, Jairus' home, death, defeated. So, picture the, the curtain rising on this story, and the first scene is by the sea as death looms. But look at verse 40 with me. So, Jesus is returning to a waiting crowd that has missed him, missed his teaching, missed his healing. And in verse 41, we're introduced to a new character in this drama. Luke writes, and there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. So this man is well respected. He's a community leader. But here he's not on a social call, is he? Luke shows him falling down at Jesus' feet, begging him to come home with him. So church, right here at the outset of this passage, we're confronted with Instant human need and desperation. 
And Jesus is the savior for the needy and desperate, isn't he? There in verse 42, we see the reason for Jairus' distress. Luke writes, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So Jairus is a father of an only child, a precious girl who, at 12 years of old, in those days, was at the verge of the prime of her life. But now she's at the verge of the end of her life. And her father, driven by his love for her and his need, comes to Jesus. He comes for one last stand for his daughter. In Mark's gospel, uh, on the same account, we see Mark shows the, the man coming to Jesus and saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So church, in this first scene, consider just the need of this man. He's a man of incredible position in the community. And yet he is, he's just prevented from doing anything about the death of his daughter. He's running out of time, he's running out of options. He needs Jesus. So there in verse 42, Jesus goes with him. He responds, Jesus responds, we've seen this so far in Luke, he responds to those who know they need him. Right? I've, the, I've not come to save the, the sick or to save those who don't need it, know they need a doctor, but those who do know they need a doctor. He said that back in chapter 5. So he's not coming simply for those who want to use him, those who like to ride along the Christian train for a while and then hop off. He comes to those who know their need and know he is the only one to meet that need. If you think about it, throughout these four miracles we've seen the past three weeks, nature, demons, now disease, and death, we see this thread woven throughout that shows Jesus' authority. Yes, I think that's the main thrust of these passages. That's been our theme for our services. But also kind of a sub-point to call people, to call it us, me, and you, to respond to that powerful authority with faith. So, in the boat, Jesus asks his disciples, where's your faith? For the demoniac, Jesus commissions him as the healed man to go and share his faith and how he's been rescued from the devil by Jesus. And today we're going to see Jairus and soon a woman on the way to Jairus' house called to show their faith in Jesus. But in this first scene, let's see that one of the components of true faith for all of these is true need. What about you, Christian? Are you able to be that honest with Jesus? Does he know you need him on a daily basis? Do you pour out your heart in prayer to him, falling at his feet again and again for help? Jesus delights in the heart that comes to him and asks him to do what only he can do. And that's the setting for what happens in the next two scenes. Scene two is the longest scene in our passage. That comes next. It's on the road. We're calling it a daughter healed and a daughter lost. So Luke describes Jesus' outset to the, the house of Jairus, and it's really stressful. So people are, verse 242, pressed around him. Luke has used that word pressed before. You know where? Uh, it's in the parable of the sower when he talks about thorns coming up and choking out the life of the word of God. That's how intense this crowd is. 
Uh, one scholar says the crowd is crushing Jesus. It's intense. And, and on top of, of it all, we as the reader and Jairus and Jesus in real time have this sort of heightened anxiety of trying to get to Jairus' home in time to save his little girl. Mostly Jairus. Jesus wasn't anxious in that way. As readers, we are caught up in this frenetic energy. Will Jesus make it in time? This story could turn really bad really quick. So in this situation, in this setting, the last thing you'd think Jairus would want, and Jesus for that matter, is a delay, right? A traffic jam. And that's exactly what happens in verse 43. Luke writes, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So here's another character introduced into the drama. We don't know how old she is. You know, Jairus' daughter is 12 years old, but we, know, we don't know how old this lady is, but we know that for 12 years, the length of the time of the girl's life, she has been afflicted. The last 12 years of her life have probably felt like an eternity. But over a decade, she has been suffering with some sort of hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging illness. She has poured her resources into consulting with doctors to no avail. In, in Mark's gospel on this story, he says, She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. This woman is miserable. And she's hopeless. There's no doctors left. And if that weren't bad enough, under Jewish law, she is not only hopeless, but she is unclean. Her condition to everyone around her is known, is shameful, embarrassing, and filthy. In Leviticus 15, we see the Jewish law regarding a woman with a prolonged discharge of blood. She is unclean, Leviticus says, and she makes other things unclean around her. Twelve years unclean. Twelve years as a shameful outcast member of society. Twelve years of waking up every morning hoping that that doctor's visit will work and only finding it to be yet another letdown. It's this woman who approaches Jesus on his way to Jairus' house. But unlike Jairus, she doesn't fall down in front of Jesus. No, she kind of secretively runs up behind him and quickly touches the edge of his garment. She's fearful. The last 12 years of her life, she has not had good encounters with other people. And what happens next, I wonder if she could even have anticipated. Verse 44. Immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. I mean, talk about surreal. Can you imagine the shock after 12 years She's cured. No medicines have worked. No treatment has proven effective. And now one touch of the hem of Jesus' cloak and it's gone? It's healed? Well, Jesus is on an important mission. He's an important person. He's a celebrity by this time. Surely he's just going to keep going, right? No, Jesus stops. And he turns and in verse 45 asks this woman who, contrary to the to, the, to Jairus is one of the lowest in society. And he says to the crowd, who was it that touched me? 
Now, in light of the, the press of the crowd, his question is a head-scratcher. We get that. That's why Peter says, uh, Master, uh, I'm not sure about a tactful way to put this, but you see everybody? This is pretty much pre-COVID New York City subway right now. But no, Jesus means something specific. He says in verse 46, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now, Jesus knows who it is who touched him. But I think we see Jesus here valuing the response of faith. See, this woman has been restored. She's good to go. And now Jesus invites her to make that known, to display her faith in him. So, in verse 47, the woman who probably gets that Jesus knows exactly who she is and she's not going to get away, he's not going to take no for an answer, Shaking and quivering, she ventures forward in front of this throng. And like Jairus now, she falls down before Jesus. She publicly owns what he has done for her. Regardless of why she's so afraid right here, I think there are different opinions about, about why she's afraid. Maybe it's the uncleanness. She just touched a teacher. Uh, maybe it's just his power in general. Whatever it is, she pushes through her fear and states that the power of Jesus has made her whole. What no physician's tools could do, Jesus has done. For the first time in 12 years, she can say, I am clean. And now everyone is hearing the story. Christian, I think we can be reminded here that true faith is public faith. When you trust in Jesus, you're going to proclaim it. See, our faith is personal, but it's in, by no means private. Christian, consider your faith. Are there places you are refraining from declaring it due to fear? Fear you're going to be rejected. Fear of looking stupid. Maybe it's the Thanksgiving family get-together when someone asks you as the religious one to say grace before the meal. Are you going to include the gospel in there and declare what Jesus has done for you, or is it just going to be like, thank you for this food, amen? Maybe it's the act of baptism. Some, something you know Jesus has called you to as a Christian, but it's really intimidating to get up even, even before a smallish church like ours. Christian, be encouraged by the example of this broken woman. Trembling with fear, she responds to Jesus' call and declares what he's done for her. And there in verse 48, he responds with the most reassuring words she's heard in 12 years. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Can you imagine Jesus calling you daughter? We saw a few passages ago how Jesus says, my true family are those who hear and do my words. She's in the family. He assures her that not only has she been healed, but she's been given peace with God. When once she had been unclean, kind of the very definition of Old Testament, not at peace with God, she now has peace. So that's one daughter made whole in this second scene. What about the other daughter? We've forgotten about her by now. But one person hasn't. It's her dad. Can you imagine what Jairus is thinking through all of this? I mean, surely he's kind of astonished real quick by Jesus' show of power. But 
I assume he's probably increasingly agitated as to what's going on back at the house. His daughter was dying when he left. What's it going to be like now? Why is Jesus delaying? The stress in the story increases throughout the second scene. So much so that the stress, I think of it as kind of like this balloon that's growing in, in scene two, and now all of a sudden the needle comes and pops it, and all the air is let out of the room. Verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. It's too late. Jesus is too late. And now Jairus' anticipation is turning to incredible despair. How do you think he's responding at the moment? How would you respond? Confusion? Grief? Anger? Jesus has delayed when he could have easily kept going. And now your little girl is dead because of that? I mean, how come, Jesus? You can feel the grief and pain in the Father's heart, but Jesus has some words, particularly for Jairus, in the midst of all of this. In verse 50, he says, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. See, Jesus has not made a mistake. It may seem his delay has been disastrous, but he has made no mistake. Church family, we're reminded here that God's timing is never off. See, Jesus wants both the woman who had the blood condition and Jairus, even now, to not only benefit from the show of his power, but also deepen their faith because of it. And wow, will this be a faith builder for Jairus. See, Jesus doesn't give him a pep talk. Believe in yourself. He gives him a call to faith. Believe in me. And so off they go again. Christian brother and sister, perhaps you are burdened by a great struggle right now. I don't know what that might be for all of you, but I do know that at any given time, most Christians will have some sort of trial of faith hanging over their hearts heavy. That's just life this side of heaven as a Christian. So for you, Christian, consider, how might Jesus be calling you in your current trial to place your trust in him? And what if he asks you to wait for the answer? What if Jesus delays? Will you still trust him? That's scene two, final scene, scene three, location of the home of Jairus, title, Death Defeated. Look at verse 51. So finally, finally Jesus arrives. Uh, he goes right to work. He limits the group going in to see the girl, the three of his closest disciples, and just her parents. In verse 52, he sees those who are weeping and mourning in kind of a, a culturally appropriate way. Uh, he goes up to them. Jesus is never one to just kind of like avoid conflict. Often he just, he just instigates it. And he says, do not weep for she's dead, but not dead, but sleeping. Jesus knows she's dead. I, I think he's showing here how that in his powerful plan, he actually has the power to wake her up. Like she was only sleeping. 
Jesus knows her death is temporary at this point. Well, they laugh at his nonsense, verse 53. In Mark's gospel, we see that they're put outside, which is kind of funny. It's like, please leave. But they think they know better. The girl's dead. So Jesus just has five people around him in the corpse of this little girl. And it's come down to this. It's kind of the, the peak of the drama. Has Jesus come too late? Is his power strong enough, yes, to defeat disease, but death is just too far? Verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. I love how we're just going from this, like, spiritual euphoria down to just, like, can she have some, a snack? Is there any snacks here? Jesus is concerned not only with her life, but with her health, isn't he? He's a good doctor. It's the voice of Jesus that speaks. And as we've seen before, when Jesus speaks, when the king speaks, death hears and obeys. I love how one uh, older commentator puts it. He says, Jesus acts like a physician who has just felt the pulse of his patient and gives instructions respecting her diet for the day. That's the power of a great physician. It's work as normal. But the passage ends on a strange note, doesn't it? In verse 56. After all of this, Jesus tells Jairus and his wife to keep things on the DL. Just hush-hush. Which is strange, because literally their 12-year-old doctor is going to start walking the streets again. And it's going to be known at some point. Why, why does Jesus say this here? I mean, we could say that, and I think there's some merit to saying that this is part of what uh, scholars call the messianic secret, right? Jesus doesn't want to be the king of the Jews like they want him to be, so he's going to try to keep his ministry more on the DL until he can go to the cross. I think there's something a little bit going on, a little bit different going on here. Why silence now? I mean, Jesus has just told the hemorrhaging woman who has been healed to state what has happened before the whole crowd. I think a good, a good idea for why Jesus is saying this is that he's concerned that all the hype will go to his signs, what he does, his miracles, and people are going to continually miss what his miracles are pointing to. And if that's the case, I think that's a good thing for us to think about as we close this morning. See, most of us know these stories. Most of us remember Sunday school coloring pages of Jesus raising the girl from her bed to new life. But let's never look at the signs and miss what they're pointing to. They're called signs, right? We must never neglect or forget what these signs and wonders direct us to. I mean, why did Jesus heal people? Why did Jesus raise a little girl from the dead? Because at a deeper level, Jesus has come to heal a greater disease. The disease of sin. Because Jesus has come to break more than just the power of physical death in one person, but the power of spiritual death for the whole world. That's what these things are pointing to. See, we began this morning by reading Michael Shermer's opinion about why religious people think God designed death. Remember his words, death is simply a transition from this stage to the next. He calls it a deific design. It's what God has created to bring us to the afterlife. Well, to Schirmer's credit, he's completely correct. 
that death is impossible to beat by cryonics and mind uploading. But he's dead wrong about why death is here at all. Death was not part of God's original design. Death came with sin because death is judgment. Death is God's judgment on sin and rebellion, our sin and rebellion, each one of us against the Almighty God. Death, by its very nature, is not our friend. It's our enemy. It's not just a transition to a, a flowery landscape. It's a punishment. That's why death is in existence right now. So is there hope? Well, yes. But since death is judgment, the hope of defeating death cannot be found in science or counseling or humor, as funny as Woody Allen can be. No, since death is judgment, the only way to defeat death is for someone else to bear the judgment for you. And that's what Jesus has come to do. I wonder if a quick illustration can help with this. It helped me. So consider my back patio right now. So between the pavers, an abundance of thistles and weeds have grown up. Kind of like a just kind of symbolic imagery of 2020, right? <laughs> And it's made the patio almost unusable for my kids. It's basically, ouch, 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 right? How do I fix the problem? Well, I could fix it in the way I fixed it on, on Wednesday evening, when I just took my mower and just buzzed it all down to a few inches, which probably will hurt more on bare feet, but that's what I did. Uh, and for doing that for a time, there's going to be sort of a temporary solution. But nothing permanent, right? Those weeds are going to grow up faster than I think is even possible. No, what I need to do is dig up the pavers, take a shovel, and wrench out the roots of those thistles and weeds. I need to get below the surface and dig out the very roots so the thistle never grows back. Church, when Jesus raised Jairus' little daughter from the grave, he did something wonderful for a time. Nothing permanent. For all we know, Jairus' daughter might have contact, contracted an even more severe illness the very next year and died when she was 13, not 12. No, Jesus here is not showing off his power. He's not just giving Jairus' daughter a new lease on life. No, he's showing that he's come to do something more. He's showing he's come, come to get to the root of the death problem. See, when Jesus died on the cross... He bore God's punishment of death for any who would trust in Him, who would repent of their sin and turn in faith to Him. That's the way to beat death. That's the only way to beat death, and that's why Jesus came. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's your hope in the face of death. Trust in the one who has rooted out the very, very deepest part of death. The very reason for his existence. Turn to him in repentance and faith. If you've never done that, we'd love to talk to you about that today. You can come talk to me afterwards. You can talk to those who are leading music or leading prayer. We'd love to talk to you about what it means that Jesus has conquered death for you. And church family, this is our king. And the most appropriate response is to fall down at his feet and worship him. And that's what we're going to do now. 
This is our king. He is the one who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Praise God that Jesus has a powerful authority, not just over the storm, not just over demons and disease, but death itself. This is our king. We'll sing, but first, let's pray.